Hi, welcome to Yes and No, Challenging Assumptions About People and Work, the podcast with I, Steve Hunt, and Kim Lear, talk about challenging issues and questions where the answer is basically yes or no, but people tend to have very strong opinions. I bring to the perspective the perspective of an industrial organizational psychologist that's worked with actually in the thousands of companies over the years, took into these issues in the workplace. Kim is a sociologist, also worked with hundreds and hundreds of companies looking at more of generational issues and how that gets into to, and we kind of go back and forth in these and really kind of to debate these these challenging questions. Um, always like to start with a caveat as we get into this. We're going to be arguing first the, why the answer should be yes, then why the answer should be no. When we're in that phase, we may say things that actually don't reflect our honest views. Please wait to the end when we really sum up exactly kind of where we stand on these very challenging issues. So today, the question, and Kim, I'm, you really, this is one that has you nervous. We're going to dive into sort of, I don't know, probably the classic question of all questions. Are men and women different? And we'll focus specifically on when it comes to work. Yeah. What do you think of this question? I at first had said, can we not do this one? <laughs> because I, I do feel like I need to give the uh, kind of disclaimer here that um, my my particular research has limitations and things like that. And I've, I haven't done explicit research on this topic. And so I pulled as much research as I could. And of course, there are some kind of opinions in here as well. But this is definitely the question that is probably most outside my research comfort zone. Yeah, I can see that. Although I, I would challenge a little bit, though, that it's fundamental to generational changes. The attitudes about the conception of even what a a man and woman has changed in yes, the, the last generation. That's so true. that these, to the degree that this reflects societal perceptions of what it means to be a man and a woman, then this absolutely is in your area. Of that's research. true. Actually, f- framed in that way, I'm just going to get more comfortable in my seat, and we're going to we're going to dig in. I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it, when we were talking about this one, you know, it is a challenging question, and we look at this question, and I kind of was sharing with you earlier why I think this is a question worth diving into because it is a very, you know, it's a difficult one because it almost implies that there are differences and we kind of don't want to think there are differences, but there probably are differences. We cannot deal with the inequalities in society if we don't understand where these inequalities exist. But if we deny the world as it is, if there are differences and we pretend they don't exist, we're not going to actually address the issue. So when I look at this topic, particularly around comparing men and women and differences at work, it really is about trying to dive into where are those differences, what is the nature of them, are some of them social generational constructs, you know, what is the job of a woman in society, that's a generational thing, or a man in society, but are some of the things tied to actual biological differences? And maybe there are biological differences that play out in work. You know, men can't give birth to children. Clearly has got to have an impact. I can't imagine something that dramatic can't play out in people's attitudes towards work. Um, how that is, I guess, is what we'll dive into. So any thoughts before I jump into the into the yes, men and women are different topic? My my only, again, maybe kind of disclaimer, we can decide what we keep in and leave out, it is that I know that the kind of topic of sex and gender and the intersection between those two things is uh, can be kind of hotly debated. And so I just want to mention that, um, you know, we're not trying to like be 
provocative for the sake of it or, or anything like that and recognizing that there are people who can identify in all different ways about um, you know their their gender expression and, and all of that so just putting that into the the context as well which I think through our conversation we'll kind of get to but, well yeah that will absolutely come up because actually when if you wait to the end that's kind of one of my big takeaways is that we need to look at sex through the way we're starting to look at gender which is yes there are differences but let's not be rooted in biology let's focus on psychology and societal concepts of it as a psychologist you would kind of intrinsically expect that there's going to be differences because there's such profound biological differences so when you say men and women here we mean it in the sexual biological sense you know that we are biologically different and in profound ways and the brain is part of the body and to think that it's independent not affected by gender it's it, 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 it of course it is you know and the fact that even more so an argument is the fact that people get so focused on gender identification tells you how important sexual orientation is to people it is so there's got to be a reason, right? The, the fact that people feel very strongly that I am a man or I am a woman, whether that is sexual or gender based on it, clearly says there's got to be, it, it's a meaningful difference. There's, there's something different. You can't pretend men and women are exactly the same because otherwise if they were, we wouldn't care so much about whether or not people call us a man or a woman. I'm curious, what is, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I'm going to leave like that psychological component to you because I know how well uh, well-versed and mm. heavy in the research you are on that component. Uh, I think my kind of where my interest and expertise intersects with this is about um, over time how different the messaging to men and women is and how much, and we can argue, we can argue exactly how much, but um, the ways in which that impacts how men and women show up in the domestic sphere and in the workplace and communities and religious organizations, all of that type of thing. And I, there is so much data to show how different the major differences that we see. I mean, I think right now, even just in, there's the very, very easily quantifiable things around men and women as they age, right? Which is that women are at this point living like pretty substantially longer than men. And so that impacts how women even need to think about work, think about life stages, think about finances, you know, that changes. And then there's also the sort of darker looming question, which is why are men dying so young? And, and how and like what happened there? And if you look at the most recent data, um, kind of the longevity progress for men has essentially stopped. And I'll make sure that that's in, in the show notes. Um, you know, and really just tragically, when we look at the group that is most vulnerable to die by suicide, it is white men over 60. And I think that there's exploration of like what – why? You know, how, how is this happening? This mental health crisis among older men. When we look at this rise in gray divorce, right, between mm. 1990 and 2015, the divorce rate among the 50 plus demographic has tripled. And uh, the vast majority, over 70% of those divorces are initiated by the woman. Mm. And so even just within that data set, we could have an endless conversation about, my God, what is going on here in these fundamental differences 
between men and women and aging and relevancy, you know, all of those components. Yeah. I, I love, Kim, how you start this going, well, I don't know that much about this area, and then you try to... <laughs> I forgot that I do know this. I do know some of this. <laughs> <laughs> but I just know that. It's like a... So, no, I think what you're pointing out, though, is that there, there's got to be something different because the outcomes are different. And right. if the outcomes are different, there's something about the experience the li- that, that they have at work that plays out that you know the work has a big impact on health and well-being and all these other things so there's it is almost certain that there's something about the experience that men and women have work that's different and i'll kind of dive a little bit into there's two ways to look at differences of experience of work one is is there something about individual differences about people themselves are men and women psychologically different now overwhelmingly in the traits that we look at that influence work now setting aside physical things right you know like strength and stuff like that because there's differences there but um if you look at the sort of like personality ability reasoning all that sort of stuff there really is not very much difference between men and women i mean there are differences on some really specific traits like spatial orientation and stuff like that but it's like unless you're talking about extreme the jobs like air traffic controllers or something, and even then technology's moderating it. There's really no difference, I would say. The variation within gender is far greater than the variation between them. Now, where there is big difference, and you alluded to, though, is the lived experiences <clears throat> that and the attitudes. And one of the big things that influences people's work is their self-conception, their possible selves, how they are treated at work, uh, what they experience at work. And on that, there is a lot of research that shows there's differences. Women tend to be rated more critically often than men, including by other women. Um, It's interesting because that sometimes, particularly when you have women that are in traditionally male roles. Now, it's interesting is that often flips the other way around. So like if you're a man, for example, as a nurse and it, then you're likely to be more valued more critically because you're traditionally that was a feminine role. Now, you know, so those are differences. Now, it's interesting that these change. We'll get into the no side because these change over time. But there absolutely are differences in kind of what women might have to do at work. Mm-hmm. You know, now there's also... I'm going to be really careful here. There's also positives. The companies have a lot of programs to support women and help their careers and things like that too so that's also a positive so the experience um that women have at work which i think is worth pointing out too because there's more women in a lot of workplaces than there are men but they're not equally distributed there's far more men higher up but a lot of companies are which says again there's got to be something different about the experience that they have at work but it's not all the research says it's not their potential or their capability it's their treatment. Yeah. Well, I th- and I'll I'll make sure that this is credited. Um, but there's a researcher who had written extensively about how women in the workplace have traditionally been over mentored and under sponsored, and this idea that people are actually very willing and hungry to give women advice, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but oftentimes less willing to sponsor them, which in the workplace setting is really like, that's when you put your reputation on the line mm-hmm. to for the sake of someone else, mm-hmm. right? Of saying like, no, this person should actually get the promotion. I'm willing to put my reputation on the line for their advancement. 
Um, and men typically have more champions in that arena where women will get very uh, spot, you know, mentored, which mm-hmm. is uh, more of an advice role. And so I think that that component is kind of an interesting one. But even as the whole conversation around um, you know, unconscious bias has really grown in the workplace, we've already seen that that's diminished slightly because it was so real. Like, you know, another one that I think about is the research on kind of that bell curve of attractiveness that is particularly important for women and definitely for younger women, which is this phenomenon in the workplace where if you're like too pretty, if you could maybe even be considered like hot, Mm -hmm. that works against you. If you're really physically unattractive, that works against you. And then there's sort of this like magic sweet spot. And I feel so weird even sharing this, so I, <laughs> I might cut it. But it's something that I think about because I've had the incredible privilege in my career of having amazing sponsors. Um, a lot of them men, some women, but a lot of them men, a lot of them significantly older than me who have really made my career, who opened so many doors for me. And when I saw this bell curve, I mean, it was like, I think I would kind of sit in that place where it's like, I'm not where, you know, if me and one of my much older mentors were, you know, sitting at the bar and talking about career and all of that, it's like, I was never pretty enough where people would be like, this is weird, (laughs) you know, or that kind of thing. But it, but I'm not like, terrifying to look at and so there was just this like weird place that I really understood that I existed that did provide me with that privilege of very close relationships with um, men who were more my senior who could help with this career trajectory well, I think, first of all, I have to say, I have so many humorous comments that I'm suppressing because probably none of them would be appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say to the audience, as sitting here looking at us from Kim, she is she's definitely not on the lower end of that. She's very... <laughs> that's, I appreciate it. Yeah, so. But but not, I, not dangerously good looking. And not, that, that's the I'm main point. I'm not going to go there. Um, okay. But the... Um, no, it's interesting. Actually, you know, this place I was men, there was research that showed that height for men, right. um, same thing. As a matter of fact, it predicted career success almost as much as other traits like ability. It's like, um, so appearance definitely has an impact. Well, that, And that's interesting. So you say that appearance is going, your appearance is going to influence your environment. Your environment is going to influence your work. So in that sense that, and that's going to change your behavior to some degree. You are going to act differently naturally in reaction to it. So in that sense, yeah, men and women are going to act differently at work because they're treated differently. But the other thing that's interesting that is probably a little, probably seems more controversial, but it's, is, well, there's two things I think where there's a difference. And one I'll come back to this is there's a phrase in, psychology called possible selves, which is basically people carry around ideas of who we might become. And that's heavily influenced both by role models, but also other things about how we're treated. You know, if you are told, and the classic example is mathematics. There's there's all the research sort of points that there's really no difference in the underlying potential for women and men to be really good at math. I think it's important. And, and the study, and this is interesting how the research plays out on this, where historically... <clears throat> boys and girls would score equally on math tests. Actually, girls tend to score a little bit better than young boys because they have better attention spans. But, um, which again, probably a bi- biological difference, right? But 
what happened is they would be the same until they got to about age 12 or 13. And then girls would radically drop off in their math performance. And this is studies back in like the 70s and 80s. And what happens to girls when they're like 13 socially? What they, what, what is it? Why, why would you think girls would suddenly decline in math performance when they hit like middle school? They're told they're bad? I'm, I'm not sure. Because at the time, it used to be, oh, pretty girls aren't smart. Girls okay. can't do math. Boys are good at math. Girls are not good at math. There was a very strong social thing. A matter of fact, there was even a doll that was like one of those dolls that talked that said, math class is hard. Let's go shopping or something. Oh, I mean, that was this sort of like, you know, girls were socialized. And plus, they didn't have role models of a lot of girls that were good, of women that were good at math either. So it kind of compounded by that. But they were socialized into this idea that girls don't do math. And this, this plays out in a lot of ways in our society. Well, that influences then their attitude and their performance in math. And then they don't take math classes. And then you end up with, um, you know, fewer girls in math classes or engineering programs. And it's less comfortable and it becomes sexist and all these other things. So it's sort of this vicious cycle. But it really starts out, it's heavily influenced by early childhood experiences. Now... That's going to play out in the workplace, right? If you people come in with an attitude that I'm not good at math, you're not going to be as good at math. And that's going to have an actual impact on possibly work-related activities. That's the challenge, right? And this goes back. And these are issues that go back, you know, 10, 15 years. But here's the positive side of this. Over the last 30 years, there's been a huge effort on women can do math, women can code, women can be programmers. And what they have seen is performance of boys and girls at math no longer declines in middle school. It stays about equal. I haven't followed the research recently, but all the way up into college, it then starts to drop off in like fewer girls going into engineering programs. But it's interesting that as a society, as society changes, people's self-conceptualization changes, which changes their performance, which affects their careers. Mm-hmm. Right. So there is a difference. Here's the where it gets really confusing is that this difference, if it's heavily rooted in society, though, is going to affect performance in the workplace. So in the sense that men and women are different at work, not because men and women are psychologically different, but because socially they're raised differently, which plays out in their performance at work. So this is one of the confounding issues, I think, of looking at understanding, not pretending that men and women aren't different at work at different things, but trying to understand how yeah. and what is driving that. If it's not basic potential, it's something else and understanding that something else. Yeah. And I, I do, I, I am actually encouraged by what has happened in the workplace over, you know, the last five to ten, five to 10 years around um, just even the more like awareness around the way that we speak to each other, the expectations that we have. I think a reason why this topic is just so loaded is for a million reasons, but I think one of them is because it's really not possible to talk about the roles of men and women at work without exploring the domestic sphere because some of the limitations of women in the workplace traditionally have been because the expectations in the domestic space were 
unbelievable. Um, and But also I think some of the limitations for men to age productively the way that women have had to do with the fact that many never felt at home at home, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that component. So I think that that is something that, that we can talk about. And then I would just say like the other piece here is that, and I, I'm, I am simply not well-versed enough to get into a conversation about like patriarchy mm-hmm. or matriarchy right. or that type of thing. But I would just mention that there is a conversation that is being had about like this big push to get women into traditionally more male-dominated fields. And then it's like, why are we not helping young boys to get into education, to get into, um, you know, nursing and, and all of these things? And so there's kind of, which I know that there's some economic components to that as well, but this, uh, the status of male-dominated fields is still very alive, which is how we created this talent funnel for girls. Yeah, well, you, you raise a really good point. I, I not really thought about that way, but, but part of this issue is we always talk about this assumption of like, I think the implicit assumption is when people think about men and women being different is that women are not as good. I think that's almost the implicit assumption. They go, oh, and you're going to talk about this is that you're going to justify why women aren't as good at certain things. And in reality, it's not. In a lot of cases, they might be better at certain things or have certain professions. But what's that point that you're making about male-dominated fields and versus female-dominated fields? I think is a is a really good one because as you're talking, most of the time when we talk about male and female differences at work, one is their assumption that it's something about how women are being treated or expected that needs to be changed. I think, and because historically it has been. Historically, the problem is that women have been biased against and and still are. I'm not, you know come a long way but we got a long way to go but another way to address is i think sometimes that we've got unrealistic expectations for men that it's like because you had that example of like you know suicide going up with men there was a study in apa and i'll have to try to dig it up that found that men who ascribe to traditional masculine stereotypes that is the man works the woman stays home and you have sort of manly jobs and all that were more likely to kill themselves they're more likely to have health issues and they're ascribing to a masculine ideal that is was probably never true but now is really not true i think that this whole conversation has actually really i mean literally in the past like month has moved its way into the forefront of popular culture you had richard reeves with the cover story in the atlantic last Mm -hmm. month about young boys and this learning loss during the pandemic disproportionately impacting young boys um at this point the majority of PhD holders are women. The majority of graduate degree holders are women. The majority of undergrad students are women. 70% of high school valid Victorians are women. And so there is something going on here that I think people are actually really open to addressing because it isn't just this mental health crisis with older men. We're kind of seeing it across the board. And just the other week, and this came up in a Q&A yesterday, but just the other week, Scott Galloway and Bill Maher were in this you know, conversation, which I feel like I have to do this. I respect obviously both of them so much, and I find that I like am am on board with them like half the time. <laughs> so it sort of depends what's going on. But Scott Galloway has been talking about this. He talked about it on this episode about these men, these 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 young men, where um, they're essentially like unmarriageable, and and in in the 
show notes, I will put the academic research around mismatches in the marriage market, assortative mating. A lot of strange things are happening. But statistically, women are less likely to marry down in educational attainments. I hate that term, marry down, but just like a woman with a PhD is actually statistically unlikely to marry a man, even with a master's degree. And so we, and so these educational shifts have these really, these, these profound ripple effects. And when you are a student of history, you know that if there are large amounts of young men who are kind of detached, it's very destabilizing. Yes, yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up because I, I think that it, it's femininity and masculinity are two sides of the same coin. So mm-hmm. when one changes, the other one begins to kind of evolve as well. And I think it's a conversation about both of these pieces. Um, yeah, I think what that it, it is is this idea that you know when you look at this question initially, you tend to think about how that that women are different and it's it's non beneficial for them. But I think as you're pointing yes. out, that we're almost reaching a point where it's like no, there's a lot of places where men are in male dominated roles, but these are unhealthy male dominated roles, and there's that that we need to change yeah the conceptualization of masculine role yeah. to one be more inclusive of women but also to be less punishing of men well let i'll if i can i'll, I'll talk about kind of men mm-hmm. for a minute and some of the implications of even things that we see in the workplace today and so when we look at men in senior positions right now and so let's so it, it's there's still a lot of like baby boomer men in that mm-hmm. role and when they started in the workplace, right, there was very traditional masculine and feminine roles, right, on mm-hmm. both sides. But the cultural message, it doesn't mean that every man internalized this, but just mm-hmm. the cultural message at the time was like, if you provide for your family, that that's your job. Like that, that's that's what you've got to do. And so, you know, when I talk to men, older men about their motivations when they first started, they'll say things to me like, I had a mortgage to pay and a family to support, and that's all the motivation that I needed. And so that was where their center of gravity existed. And later in life, it's not enough. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting, too, because you get into where men and women, I say, are differences, things like childcare. Yeah. Where, you know, certainly in our society, women tend to want to take more time off to be with children, to raise children, you know. Whether that's social expectations or there's a biological component, I don't know. Um, my intuition says there probably is some slight biological component to it, but um, that's not my area of psychology. I guess that's biology. But the uh, so, but if you look at that, that is going to have an effect on women if they do take time off to be to children. That will affect your career, you know, as it should. If you spend less time working, you know, you're going to advance less quickly. But that doesn't mean you can't advance at all. I think companies are getting a lot better at letting people step off the fast track and back on the fast track. And this is a conversation that I've had with several, actually several companies that are saying, we need to get away from this idea that, oh, you're neither in the fast track and you're a high potential. And then if you leave, you never are again. We need to allow people to step off. And they're doing this better with not just um, with childcare, they're doing it with health. 
um, companies care, are realizing yeah. this more. So there's a definite shift here. But I think historically, certainly society was more punishing for people who took like extended maternity leaves. And I think that's changed. So in that sense, men and women are different. But this gets us into the no now. I want to go into the no side because hopefully what came through in that conversation of why we're different there are some biological things I suspect. I don't, you know, like like desire to raise children. I don't know for sure. But what's absolutely clear is there are social roles, self-image perceptions, perceptions of what is effective work, self-identity perceptions that are different between men and women. If you were raised as a man and raised as a woman in our society, you have different self-concepts. There's no way you can't, right? And what we're learning is how pervasive these self-concepts, like my example of the math differences, that how how big an impact they can have, but also that we can change them. And we have changed them. I mean, if you look, the biggest shift in the nature of work in the 20th century, well, I think the biggest was the workers' rights movement, but the second biggest was the entrance of women into the workforce. And you know, and that was a reflection of a fundamental change in societal attitudes. It started in like the late um, 19th century, where this idea about women should be more educated, they should vote, the women's suffrage movement, and that sort of played out to women becoming educated, and then women entering the workforce. And as women have entered the workforce, there's been a fundamental shift in, the, in what it is to be a woman in our society. So this is a very positive thing when we think about how can we rethink work, rethink what is a job so that it becomes more aligned with how women self-identify and more inclusive for both. So it doesn't have to be like, you know, I think there's a way to redesign jobs and reconceptualize work so it becomes more inclusive for both. But well, I would also argue that a new generation of fathers is very different as well. And so I think that that has a component here where when we think about, well, how do we like rejigger jobs to work within, you know, the, the way that maybe women work or that type of thing. The big conversation in the workplace in this post-pandemic environment is around like maintaining culture while honoring autonomy and this whole like flexibility and remote work and all and all of this kind of stuff. And these topics have always been critical for women. I mean, you you. Mm -hmm like look at archival work about what women always needed in the workplace mm -hmm. and because they were uh, the primary caregivers they always needed a level of flexibility but these topics could be put in this box labeled women's issues and pushed to the side and now they can't because a new generation of men it have redefined what men need and are looking for in the workplace and as women started contributing more financially to the home front men started contributing more domestically mm -hmm. and so of course the massive disclaimer here is that women are still doing the vast majority of domestic work but the social construction of fatherhood has changed the baseline expectations of fatherhood have changed and so when we look when we look at the great resignation when we look at why people leave so many men left and these exit interviews were things like, if you're bringing me back into the office, like the, you know, the, the commute is too long or it's too much time away from my kids. It can't be balanced with my partner's um, ambitions, things like that. And I'll tell you that on the main stage when I present about kind of the evolution of fatherhood, it's the piece that gets the biggest response. And afterwards, there are always 
men who come up to me and they say things to me like, you don't miss what you never had. Mm -hmm. And so when I came into the workplace, it's like I kind of knew that I was never going to be that dad that's like at the soccer practices or, you know, that kind of stuff because I was doing something else Mm -hmm. noble, right? Mm -hmm. I'm providing for my family and all that. Then the pandemic hit. And I could tell my team, I'm going to take 30 minutes. I'm just running down to the park to catch Mm -hmm. my kid's game. And then you see it, you know, and you see your kid be brave or do something they've never done. You see them get hurt and call out your name. And you can't put this genie back in the bottle. It already happened. Mm -hmm. And men have been exposed to these moments of parenthood that make it special. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's such a good observation that we have this, this opportunity that when we look at, first of all, on the no side, just finished it, I think that men and women are not different in the work in any way that has to do with the fundamentals of being male or female. I mean, aside from jobs that are, have physical characteristics to it. But you know, when we talk about sort of like ability, personality, everything that is the difference is a reflection of societal expectations around what it is to be a woman or what it is to perform a job or, you know, but also what it is to be a man. And I think that is one of the really untapped areas that I'm taking away from this conversation is we should, one, look to make sure that we're not defining jobs that are either masculine or feminine. They should, there's, that should not, jobs should be gender fluid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so really challenging to make sure there's nothing about this job that is only a reflection of that in the past it was predominantly for, performed by women or in the past predominantly performed by men. You know, you know, get, you know, that's like these things like remote work and all that stuff. We go like, let's design a work that's just inclusive for everyone. So challenge that. But I think part of a, at the broader societal level is having redefining masculinity is part of this is if, if the traditional masculine view was, well, my job is to go in and provide for the family they are not going to value the flexibility and the other things. And I think part of that is to realize, no, we want to rethink work so that there isn't this split. Right. And I think that's a, it's a very necessary thing for a variety of reasons too, because we can't, given the sort of skill shortage and what you shared earlier about, you know, educational levels, we need women fully engaged. <laughs> But we also need men to be fully engaged. We don't right. want lots of disenfranchised men. And, and that's kind of happening. The last recession was a man session. It was overwhelmingly men. And a lot of them never really came back to work full time. So really questioning. We, over the last hundred years, our society fundamentally changed the conception of what a woman's role is in society. Now, I think part of the problem is that for a while we just added more stuff. Be professional and raise the whole family. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I think we need to dive into that topic on the male side and say, what is it to be a man in our society? And it's happening. It's starting to happen. But I think in a lot more, um, a lot more thoughtful way that we're like saying a lot of the issues that we see in industries that are male dominated that women have a hard time getting in it's not women it's the men and how they define the work and why they define that way because they come at it with this strange masculine identity that's unhealthy yeah so i think that's that that's a big takeaway from this i know we started this one and i (laughs) i had never really thought about it that way but that's probably more of the conversation around gender equity and 
equity probably is about we need to change the concept of what it is to be a man. As well, yeah. Well, and in the show notes, because I'll, I'll kind of wrap up my piece, but this conversation is really at the forefront of a lot of these Gen Z conversations. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like so kind of top of mind as there is this real reevaluation around gender and fluidity mm-hmm. and the roles of men and women and also just like the p- potential non-binary nature of all of this. But I'll put in there just just some of that conversation, kind of this, uh, especially, you know, this Gen Z women and their kind of reevaluation of millennial girl boss feminism and how much like that whole conversation has really shifted. And this very interesting conversation about like what is the female gaze and how like what men think women think is attractive is actually like not what women think is attractive. And so even there, there's just these hilarious conversations, a lot of them taking place on TikTok. There's things going on in Discord and just some of these kind of more niche internet places as well. But it those are areas where I kind of track like where this is going because I find it fascinating. And I think that over time, obviously, this really trickles into the workplace because, of course, there's the piece of how does the workplace treat these two concepts of male and female? And then there's also, like, how does a new youth culture define mm-hmm. it for themselves? Mm-hmm. And what is the energy that they bring in to the workplace? And that's kind of a symbiotic relationship between the, those two two elements. So it's an ongoing conversation, and I think it's been really interesting to see the direction that uh, that I hear young people going with with this whole conversation. Um, For men, where they're sort of stuck in this old masculine ideal, but a changing world, and the masculine ideal going back to that they're clinging to is not a healthy one, but it's hard to say what do they go to. Well, and... I would say that that is generational in in many ways because I believe that there are many younger men who don't feel the same masculine constraints that older men feel because they grew up with a really different conversation. So a conversation that is maybe new for, you know, where you're like, God, we do need to talk about this masculine component. There's like a whole group of teenagers and people in their early 20s where this conversation is very like it's going on, you know, like they're doing it. They're kind of having this exploration, this redefinition of masculinity. And it's and it exists in these kind of interesting pockets. Um, So but I think that it's a really good thing. I think that it's really unavoidable to see the differences in this focus on female empowerment Mm -hmm. and female growth has been wildly successful. (laughs) And so so now I think it's the determining not what. Um, And and in in this Richard Reeves essay that, that will be in the show notes, he gives just, the endless statistics about how all the you know the girls who code and girls on the run and all of these phenomenal programs how effective they have been for young girls and then talked about the programs that have been implemented for either for boys and girls or for boys and how ineffective they have been for boys so there's something going on there around like how do we fuel the growth and development 
of all of us, you know, to to reach that that parity. But I but I would never say that it's like better for one or the other or anything mm-hmm. like that because there's you know there's headwinds and in different ways. We're in a real challenging time in this because we've had, which is we've had great success of of these programs focused on changing women's self concept, helping them advance their career. Now, on one hand, you could say, and men have always had that, but that's not actually true. We had a society that was more supportive of being a man, but there weren't programs that were sort of tailored to tie to. They they weren't thought through the same way, you know. I I've worked with companies that you know have early potential talent for women and women support groups and all these things, and they do a lot of focus to help women navigate careers, make connections, um, and all women. They tend not just to be you know limited to like the high performers, right? Companies don't necessarily do that. Well, they don't do that for men. I'm not saying they should do it for only men. I don't think they should. But there isn't the equivalent for a man to have access to that in a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, and, I, I'm always hesitant to like go down the path of like, let's feel bad for men, which I know is not which, at all what you're saying. Not, yeah, which is not <laughs> yeah. at all what I'm saying. <laughs> no, but I'm I saying know. You're, if you look at the outcomes, though, right. I mean, this, the increased suicide rate and the short longevity. Totally. That, and, I would, and I would say, and I think you would also, that like this was – a series of unintended consequences as a result of very good intentions, right? Like that no one's intention was like, let's get, let, let's blow women out of the water mm. and all of this. And let's like watch men begin to suffer, right? It was just like, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. We're raising healthier women, but for some reason we seem to be raising less healthy boys. Yeah. And I, you know, um, which then again, and I think this is important because going back to when you look at the differences in men and women in the workplace, I would argue that most of those differences that do exist are due to social differences that existed 20, 30 years ago. That we are benefiting now from the changes that were made when girls grew up in the 70s and 80s. Right. You know, and yeah. so what are the changes we should be making now so that we change the course of what's happening? And hopefully, you know, the goal eventually is to get to the idea where like just gender fluidity, work fluidity, there is no masculine or feminine job. There's just work. Yeah. And that's... that's. I would agree. We're, we're making... Yeah. So I'm always an optimist, but I think you've yeah. raised... um. The, 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 the thing that I had not really thought about that you really raised is that how much of these issues aren't going to be solved by addressing masculinity identification as opposed to femininity. Yeah. And yeah. And uh, the tiny caveat that I'm just going to throw in here is I and I know you didn't mean this broad scope but like you know for raising these healthy girls and then it's like less healthy for boys is that and again in the show notes we'll put this but like social media has shown to be much worse for young girls than for young boys and so there's you know like I said it's like there's headwinds in in different ways but I think that I'll land on this final point which is I believe that you and I and also like most people have the same goal of we want there to be opportunities for all children, you know, for mm-hmm. for all people and, you know, for them to be seen and appreciated for who they are and to be, um, you know, given opportunities based on 
um, their interests and their passions and their abilities and all of these different things. And so I think it, we're just at a very interesting like uh, inflection point when it comes to this topic of men and women. And it's this time of exploration and experimentation to figure out what does each group need in order to succeed. Yeah, I think that's... And to look at this at this point about, you know, are going back, are men and women different when it comes to work? Um, we are different in how we are raised in our conceptualization. And we are different in the experiences we have both at work and outside of work. And those all affect our performance, our success, our happiness at work. And looking at this holistically and not making this about, you know, just women or men it's about women and men together and what is a and this is i'll just close with this and i've never i've never seen and probably there's something out that i just haven't seen it because this is outside of my area that would be we always talk about masculine identity and feminine identity what is the ideal blended men and women together identity couple i don't know couple identity or whatever you would call it um because there's always, I do believe biologically, you're always going to have men, you're always going to have women, and that's going to influence things in the ways that we interact and society interacts. And I think we are seeking to find a much better balance of those two because we certainly know what was in the past was not fair. Mm-hmm. But we're going through a difficult challenge of figuring out that next step. So, wow, Wonderful. this was a heavy, heavy topic. <laughs> I'm like kind of blown away. No, so. it's, and, and because neither Steve or I have our you know explicit research background in this I do just want to plug for those of you who are interested my favorite researchers on this on this topic um, Mary Pfeiffer a wonderful psychologist reviving Ophelia is one of her books women row north is one of her books um, Richard Reeves who has done a lot of the work around young boys and um, his stuff has been really interesting. Eli Finkel, he's a psychologist in Northwestern, and he studies marriage and relationships, but there's so much in there about, you know, the role of husbands and wives and, you know, the evolving conversation there. Paula Foss is at UC Berkeley. She's um, she wrote The End of American Childhood, but she's a historian who does a lot of work on childhood, but obviously that intersects in a million ways with motherhood, fatherhood, marriage, the domestic space, and the way that that inevitably intersects with our economy and our workplaces. So I just want to um, plug those researchers and writers for those of you who are interested into digging deeper. Yeah, those are way, and all my stuff is like obscure Journal of Applied Psychology, <laughs> peer review journal that nobody's going to want to read. But we'll have some of those in the show notes as well, too. Great. So, well, Kim, thank you for a great show. Thank you so much.